Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast series. My name is Heather Lubke, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute. The Environmental Law Institute has partnered with Sidley Austin LLP to launch the second season of the podcast series entitled The Enforcement Angle. Through this series, our goal is to discuss state and federal enforcement of environmental laws and regulations with senior enforcement officials and thought leaders on environmental enforcement in the United States and globally. Today's host is Nicole Noel East. Nicole is a managing associate in the environmental practice at Sidley Austin LLP. On today's episode, Nicole speaks with John Cruden and David Buente. John Cruden is a principal at Beverage and Diamond and former assistant attorney general of the Environment and Natural Resources Division, ENRD, of the U.S. Department of Justice. Before becoming assistant attorney general, Mr. Cruden served as a career executive with ENRD, first as the chief of ENRD's environmental enforcement section, and later as deputy assistant attorney general. He also served as president of the Environmental Law Institute, president of the American College of Environmental Lawyers, and chair of the ABA section on environment, energy, and resources. David Buente is a partner in the environmental practice at Sidley Austin LLP. He served as the chief of the environmental enforcement section, Environment and Natural Resources Division, from 1985 to 1990. During that role, he directed all federal, civil, and criminal environmental enforcement litigation. Prior to that, he handled a broad range of federal environmental trial and appellate litigation for EPA and other federal agencies as a Justice Department trial attorney, and also served with the Interior Department and the Pennsylvania Attorney General's Office. Thank you so much, David and John, for joining us today. We're really excited to hear about your storied careers at DOJ and in private practice. The first question I have for both of you is, when did you start at DOJ and how did the environmental enforcement section get formed? David, I'll go to you first. I started in what was then called the Lands Division in 1979. I had been working at the Interior Department Solicitor's Office on the initial implementation of SMCRA, the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act. And I worked with a team of Lands Division attorneys on litigation here in the District Court in D.C. to challenge the initial program implementation. So that's how I got introduced to the Justice Department. When I started in December of 79, I joined the old pollution control section. In those days, EPA's litigation was handled by the pollution control section and in another group called the hazardous waste section, which had been created in about 1978 at the beginning of the hazardous waste enforcement program. Several things then happened within 1980. One was the pollution control and hazardous waste sections were merged and then split in two to create the environmental enforcement section to do all of EPA and some other agencies' enforcement-related litigation. And then the defensive litigation plus enforcement of 404 Clean Water Act was given to the environmental defense section. And at the time, the enforcement section covered both civil and criminal enforcement. And I went to EDS and stayed there for a while, although in those days, 
The defense section attorneys handled enforcement cases, so I did both, including criminal cases, for about four years. And then in 1984, I got promoted to being an assistant chief in the environmental enforcement section. Thanks, David. John, the same question for you. So it's a pleasure for me to be following David because we're good friends. And I also followed him as chief of enforcement. So David leaves, I come in in 1991. And so now I'm coming into a fully baked section with litigating groups. All of the environmental enforcement section was organized geographically into litigating groups. And I had a bevy of assistant chiefs and senior lawyers and senior counsel that I inherited from David. It's probably worth mentioning that the environmental enforcement section and the environmental defense section had fairly different roles, not just in terms of litigating affirmative and defensive cases, but EES was always a district court enforcement case program. When there were appeals from district court cases, those were then handled by the appellate section in the division. On the other hand, the environmental defense section handled both district court defensive litigation, and it also handled appellate cases that were in the nature of direct petitions for review from EPA final agency actions to the courts of appeals, where judicial review would occur on the basis of the administrative record. We worked closely with EDS and with the appellate section because there were many times where we knew cases were going to go up on appeal and also there were both affirmative and defensive responsibilities in particular cases. For example, when we brought an enforcement action and the defendant counterclaimed against the government, then the counterclaim would typically be handled by the defense section. And that happened often, particularly in Superfund litigation, where the government was both an enforcer as well as some government agency was a potentially responsible party. And David, that's really helpful to describe how they were organized, these two sections. How large would you say each section was, EDS and EES at the time? Initially, EES and EDS were roughly about 30 attorneys. So that's in 1980. By the time I moved to EES in 1984, it was up to about between 50 and 60 attorneys. And EDS remained at about 30 attorneys. What happened was, with the enactment of the Superfund statute in the end of 1980, eventually money was made available to the Justice Department through an interagency agreement with EPA to fund hiring additional attorneys because there was going to be a massive increase in litigation under the Superfund program, both enforcement and defense and appellate. But the bulk of that money was assigned to EES and so by 1984, when I became an assistant chief in EES, as I said, there were around 60 attorneys. And by the time I left, there were almost 160 attorneys. And at that point, it had become the largest single litigating section in headquarters DOJ. Also, in late 1987, the criminal enforcement program was split off. It was taken out of EES where it had been described as a unit and was instead elevated to being an actual section, the environmental crime section. Judge Starr became the first section chief. And at that time, they had about 15 attorneys doing environmental crimes. When I left in 90, they had increased to roughly 30 to 35 attorneys. Wow. So definitely growth in those three sections. It was explosive. John, you touched on joining DOJ after David. What was it like immediately becoming chief of EES 
when you joined? It was rock and roll. David left me a few cases to litigate. We had Love Canal, we had Exxon Valdez. Superfund had been reformed in 1986, and we were busy trying to establish joint several retroactive strict liability. Clean Air Act amendments had come in into 1990. That was an explosion of litigation. There was not a week that went by that we were not filing a new complaint, very often on issues that were very often the first time that that would be litigated in a particular court. And so it was a full-time job with a whole bevy of the people that David had chosen. I got to pick a bunch of others. These were people flooding into the Department of Justice, people who wanted to do this kind of work their whole life. Some of the cases that you mentioned are those that I studied in environmental law. It's amazing to be talking to both of you who worked on these cases. Speaking of cases, David, what statutes did you work with the most during your time at DOJ? Well, it varied considerably from when I was a staff attorney in EDS to when I was in EES as a manager. In EES, we spent a lot of time on the Superfund program and the Superfund statute, establishing what I would call the rules of the road for enforcement. And as John said, establishing the absolutely key principle of joint and several strict and retroactive liability so long as the harm was not divisible, and also establishing the principle that there would be no pre-enforcement judicial review of EPA's cleanup decisions. We also did a lot of Clean Air Act enforcement work. In those days, the focus was on the implementation of the state implementation plan program, particularly focused on power plants, steel mills, asbestos renovation and demolition cases, and the early stages of ozone non-attainment SIP enforcement. And then a large number of Clean Water Act cases. By the time you got to the mid-80s, most of the early Clean Water Act and PDS enforcement against factories had been resolved at that point, the sort of basic implementation of getting permits and installing controls. But there was a lot of work done in the later 80s and into the 90s with publicly owned treatment works and municipal stormwater programs, and indeed continues to this day. We also did a lot of litigation under the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. Initially, the imminent substantial endangerment provision of RICRA was used as the precursor to Superfund as a way to get cleanups ordered by the courts. But then the RICRA regulatory programs kicked in in 1980, and we had a whole series of initiatives to enforce various aspects of the RICRA hazardous waste subchapter C regulatory programs as they came in, especially after the 1984 RICRA amendments. Lastly, we did do some FIFRA TOSCA work, but I would call it relatively minor part of the docket because in the, those programs, certainly at that time, most of the enforcement was done by EPA administratively without involving justice or the courts. The criminal program focused on clean air, clean water, RICRA. It was targeted really at people who operated entirely outside the regulatory programs by not getting permits, not filing for permits, and for false statements in monitoring or other reports to the government. That was the focus of the criminal program. That's really helpful. And David, you touched on earlier some of the restructuring and organization of DOJ headquarters. Could you talk a bit about whether you had any field offices when you were at DOJ? And if so, how were they started? 
Well, they were started under my tenure as EES chief, but under John's regime, it was expanded quite a bit. The first office was located in San Francisco, and it was done simply because of the burden of constantly flying DOJ DC attorneys to the West Coast to appear in court and to work with EPA Region 9, which was located in San Francisco. And then the regional offices thought this was a really neat idea. So pretty soon I had requests from every regional council to establish a field office in their city. We couldn't afford to do that under the budget that we had, but we were able to put several attorneys in Denver and a attorney in Chicago and another one in Seattle to service EPA Region 10. John, you want to talk about what happened after that? So we did a study and I figured out that somewhere like 10 to 20 percent of my travel budget was going to Denver. And so we expanded dramatically the Denver office solely for the reason that so much of our cases were there. One of my favorite female lawyers When she was leaving the enforcement section, she said, when I started getting Christmas cards from a hotel in Denver, I knew two things. I knew that I was going to be on the road all the time I was working for you. And then in my lifetime, I would like to have a boyfriend and I was not going to get one while I worked for you. So we expanded San Francisco, virtually every big case you can think of, Stringfellow, Operating Industries. I thought we were employing half of the environmental lawyers of California in all of our various Superfund cases. We expanded only slightly Seattle because we picked up Alaska. The Alaska field office was closed down, but we picked it up in Seattle. And then when the one person in Chicago left, I did not fill that position. It was enough going on with the field offices there. The field offices, however, were not independent. Some field offices and other parts of the Department of Justice, Civil Division in particular, that I served in for a year, they have some independent authority. Ours did not. All of those people in field offices still had to clear through assistant chiefs and section chiefs just like they did when they were at Maine Justice. You also opened one in Boston, right? And Boston. We actually created, and all these come out of cases. This was the Charlie George case that I also inherited from David, which we litigated forever and which I argued before the First Circuit. But because we had documents there and we had two or three attorneys basically living there, that formed the basis and it's been there ever since. Wow. So it sounds like the field offices followed the EPA regions. Roughly. It was also a time when they started when it was just at the beginning of electronic communications. When I became the section chief in 1985, You communicated by fax, phone, voicemail was new, and there were no electronic communications of records or documents. EES actually was the first test case for the Justice Department in using computers to do word processing and moving information around the country. It, of course, didn't help when the courts were not able to receive the information. This is the day before electronic dockets, so we still had to set up computers either in our field offices or in the EPA region or in the U.S. attorney's offices and send the stuff and then have them delivered by hard copy. But it was just at the beginning of that, and so you still had to move a lot of information by hard copy around the country. It was a big challenge, especially in the very large Superfund cases where you might have four or 500 PRPs in, involved in one lawsuit. I can't imagine carrying around my binders <laughs> for a single case. So, David, who were the assistant attorney generals when you were chief at DOJ? 
When I started as the section chief in 1985, Hank Habick was the AAG. He was a relatively, for that job, a very young lawyer. He had graduated from UVA Law School in the late 70s, had been in private practice just a couple of years, and then had served as a special assistant to William French Smith, who was the first of Reagan's attorneys general. And then he went to the Lance Division and briefly served under Carol Dinkins, who was then the AAG as political deputy, and then became the AAG. And then he was followed by Roger Marzulla, who stayed until the end of the Reagan years. And then Dick Stewart arrived during the Bush one regime. Dick had been a Harvard Law School professor of environmental and administrative law. He co-taught the administrative law course at Harvard with Justice Breyer, who was then on the Judiciary Committee. And then when I left, Dick left not too long after that. He actually taught at Georgetown briefly and then at NYU, and he was of counsel to Sidley for about a decade after that. Thanks, David. John, the same question for you. So I pick up the Dick Stewart. He was still there when I came in, so he was the assistant attorney general who selected me. From then forward, there was sort of a combination between the Senate-confirmed political assistant attorney generals and then acting. There was a fair amount of acting assistant attorney general. So after the Bush administration, Clinton administration comes in and the career deputy assistant attorney general, Miles Flint, becomes the acting assistant attorney general for quite a while. And then Lois Schiffer, who had been in the division before, had been the chair of one of the sections. She became the assistant attorney general for the bulk of the Clinton administration. Then Bush II comes in. I was the acting assistant administrator because by then I was the career deputy for about the first year of that administration. And then Tom Cincinnati. Tom Cincinnati, who had been a previous solicitor of Interior, came in. He was then replaced during that administration by Sue Ellen Woolridge, who had also had been the solicitor of Interior. And then finally, ending it out, Ron Tempest. Ron, who was a U.S. attorney, and then ultimately serving on the staff of the deputy attorney general. And those are the people that I worked for. And then subsequently in the Obama administration, I was again acting the first year of that. And then Ignacia Moreno was an assistant attorney general. And then when she left, then I returned. And I returned at that stage as the political appointed assistant attorney general then for the remainder of the Obama administration. If I could go back to you, David, for a second. John and I touched on these major cases that you both were involved in. Could you talk a bit about Love Canal that was being litigated while you were chief? What was that like, being a part of that? When I came from EDS to EES in 1984, there were actually four major Superfund cases up in the Western District of New York. They were called the Niagara Frontier cases and all involved sites where waste materials from Occidental's chemical plants in the Niagara Falls area had come to be located. Love Canal was just one of the four cases. And what was different about Love Canal from the other three, the other three, EPA had not, and the state of New York had not tried to do their own cleanup work. The other three were not located directly in the middle of a residential area like Love Canal. And so those cases were all relatively early on settled under consent decrees where Occidental agreed to perform the remedial investigation to determine what the cleanup should be. Love Canal was different in that the United States government, principally through FEMA, had between 1979 and 1984 spent 
which in those days was a lot of money, 70 or 80 million dollars, digging up waste in the Love Canal landfill location and contaminated soil and hauling it off to either be incinerated or landfilled. And they also had moved approximately three dozen families who lived in the inner circle of homes around the dump site out. It was the first time anyone had ever done that for a waste disposal case. And they did it before there was specific statutory authority in Superfund to do relocation, permanent relocation work. And so it was all considered precedent setting and particularly controversial. And in those days, at least, Occidental proved to be very litigious over trying to challenge the nature of the decisions, whether they were supportable by scientific evidence, and also challenging the documentation for the costs that were expended. And it was all still going on when I left in late 1990. And David, that background on Love Canal is very helpful. And in the same vein of landmark cases or events that occurred during your tenure at DOJ, the Superfund reauthorization occurred when you were chief. How was EES involved? You touched on this a bit before, but can you discuss more fully how EES was involved? EES was very involved both in the congressional process leading up to the Sarah Amendments of 1986, as well as in the implementation of numerous provisions, both enforcement and program cleanup related and the like by EPA and the other federal agencies in the following three or four years. There were two EES attorneys Nancy Firestone and Joel Gross, who spent a great deal of time with EPA officials and meeting with congressional staff and members throughout the process, which lasted about two years. Nancy is now a judge on the U.S. Court of Claims. She was the deputy EES chief at the time, and Joel is probably the leading expert on the intersection between bankruptcy law and environmental law, and is a partner, Arnold and Porter, and then there were a couple of lawyers in the division's policy, litigation, and special legislation section at the time who worked on the reauthorization as well with EPA people. And we helped to draft a fair amount of the text of the amendments as it went through the House and the Senate and conference committee and had extensive back and forth with the Office of Management and Budget and the White House Legal Counsel's Office. And then following the enactment, Lee Thomas at the time was the administrator of EPA and had come up through the Superfund program. So he took a great deal of interest in how it was being implemented, the amendments. So we had a working group that included myself and Gene Lucero at the time was the enforcement director for Superfund at EPA and several lawyers from the Office of General Counsel as well as the Office of Enforcement and then some representative of some of the regions. We worked on developing the guidance documents that are still in effect today, probably at least a half dozen of them over the course of 1987, 88, and 89. And John, I know that Sarah Part 2 occurred under your tenure at DOJ. Could you talk briefly about how EES was involved? So everybody understands how controversial Superfund still continues to be. So during the Clinton administration, they went through a whole kind of a reg reform, Carol Browner, appointed Bob Sussman, who was then the political deputy, to run a whole 
soup to nuts look at, Superfund, how it was being implemented, what could be done administratively. So I was chosen to run the natural resource damage portion of that inquiry. So I was kind of on a separate track where we were creating legislative recommendations and then folding that into the, what the administration was doing overall. EES played a really key role. I mean, when I say key role, we had people on the House and Senate every week meeting with staff, meeting with Senator Max Baucus. I met with Congressman John Dingell on any number of occasions, trying to both educate and we were advocating. We were advocating for things. I had tried a case in the district court called Fleet Factors, which ultimately got a lot of attention as to a bank liability. So that became an issue that Congress needed to resolve and ultimately did, ultimately made, I wouldn't say gigantic changes, but some significant changes. And at the same time, the EPA's administrative reform issues started to get traction. And so a lot of the, and this took years, this took three and four years to go through ultimately before the whole emphasis on redoing or eliminating or cutting out Superfund died out. But EES played a really key role. A number of people played a key role in that effort. And then one thing I wanted to mention and talk about and discuss a bit with you, John, is EES when you were chief. So where was it located while you were chief and how did it change organizationally? So when I took over, remember I took this over from Dave's stewardship. We were all at Maine Justice. We were on a couple of floors of Maine Justice. As David said, Environmental Enforcement Section was at that stage by far the largest section in all of the Department of Justice, and we got too big. There were three and sometimes even four lawyers to an office. Secretaries were in the hallway. Paralegals were in the hallway. By the end of the time that we were in Maine Justice, new lawyers didn't actually get an office. They got a name card. And then they would walk down the hall and see who was missing that day because everybody was on travel all the time, and they would put their name card in. And so we stayed there until we got bigger quarters. Over by the White House on New York Avenue, 1425 New York Avenue, that building was just being created, and we were one of the first occupants there and had the three top floors. And that stayed for quite a while and then moved over to the Patrick Henry building, and it stayed there until the beginning of the Trump administration where they have moved again. So during my tenure, though, it was at Main Justice or 1425 New York Avenue. And I didn't make, frankly, I didn't make a lot of organizational changes from David. We elevated some people like Joel Gross that David's already mentioned. I elevated him to be the head of the litigating group for what was then the Region 5 group. I elevated Walker Smith, who's now the general counsel of NOAA, elevated her to be head of the litigating group of four and nine. Bill Brighton, who had been our lead civil lawyer on Exxon Valdez, gave him a assistant section chief. And then I added some senior counsel. These were really important people in the section. These were really well-known litigators. Many of them went on to other positions, both Bruce Botkite and Phil Brooks, both ultimately got SES positions at EPA. But I created a few more of those positions. But that structure that David described at the outset, where it was geographically oriented so that those attorneys pretty much knew the courts in their geographical area. They certainly knew the EPA regions in there. We kept that basic structure. I just added a few on the edges. Both of you touched on how EPA regional offices worked with the field offices. Who were the client agencies that you worked with the most, John and David, during your tenure at DOJ? And I'll go to you, David. By far and away, EPA 
EPA represented approximately 90% plus of the workload. We did do work under the Superfund program with a variety of other agencies, both in terms of cleanup where there was contamination that had occurred on property these agencies managed, and there was another entity responsible for having created the contamination. So that kind of property could include the Corps of Engineers, GSA, the Interior Department, Department of Agriculture, typically with, with the Forest Service. And then there were the natural resource damage cases with the natural resource damage trustees, which principally were the Fish and Wildlife Service at Interior and the Forest Service at Agriculture and NOAA at the Commerce Department. And then in the criminal program, there were some cases investigated by EPA relatively early on had its own Office of Criminal Investigations and, and its own criminal investigators. But there were also were cases that were developed by agency inspector generals, as I remember. Not, not a lot, but some. And then as time went on into the late 80s, the FBI became very active with EPA in investigating environmental criminal cases. And it was Throughout the 1990s, it was probably the third highest priority for the FBI. Then, of course, 9-11 changed a lot of priorities, but even to this day, it remains a significant player in environmental criminal cases. And then, David, we know that you were at DOI prior to DOJ. Did you work with any of your former DOI colleagues? Now, the Surface Mining Act litigation was handled by, in those days, the old general litigation section, which became the natural resources section. So I really didn't have any direct contact after I moved to justice with the, the people at OSM. John, which client agencies did you work with the most? Was your experience the same as David's? So the numbers that I would give, I think David's pretty much right on the enforcement side. But by the time I became assistant attorney general, so now I'm not looking at just enforcement cases, but all of the cases, I would say top five agencies, still EPA. Now this is division wide, but about 40 percent of the cases and Department of Interior were the other 40 percent because of the Bureau of Land Management, Bureau of Reclamation, Fish and Wildlife Service. We did a fair amount for National Park Service, so they would be right there, even with Interior. And then Defense, Department of Defense writ large, but also because of the Army Corps of Engineers. And then Department of Commerce because of NOAA, and then Department of Agriculture because of the Forest Service. Those would have been the other two major clients, but because of other statutes, the Environment Division worked with every single federal agency that you can think of. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. And one of the themes of this episode has been how many of the major landmark environmental cases both of you have worked on. John, you have negotiated two of the largest settlements in ENRD history, Deepwater Horizon case NVW. Could you compare the two and talk about your experience on those? So in my first half of my time in the Obama administration, I did negotiate Deepwater Horizon in the second half, sort of almost nonstop, but a different litigating team did Volkswagen. There's some comparability in the sense that they're both cases over $20 billion if you look at all of the settlement parts, but in many ways they're fundamentally different. Deepwater Horizon is Water Spill Oil Pollution Act case. There was three trials in that case, so we had decisions and judgments, and there was congressional hearings, and Coast Guard did a study. There was other studies that were going on at the same time. Five states 
signed up to the ultimate consent decree. Five federal agencies, this is the only time the Environmental Protection Agency act as a natural resource damage trustee. The difference for the division is the division did the civil work, but the criminal cases, and there was a criminal plea in Deepwater, and there were some individual prosecutions were actually done by the criminal division, not done by Environment and Natural Resources Division. But I would say one thing about Exxon, it was an accident. It really was an accident. 40 people got injured, 11 people died, but certainly it was an accident. The difference is Volkswagen was not an accident. Volkswagen was an intentional act. The penalties are similar, but they're all in the billions. Deepwater, as I recall, the penalty was like over $5 billion, Volkswagen over $4 billion there. Volkswagen had three consent decrees three different consent decrees based on somewhere close to the entirety of the diesel fleet of Volkswagen in the United States was in play at that stage. And so the consent decrees were by models. They are models of engines because some of the engines were in Porsche, some of the engines were in other manufacturers, so they were done by engine class. That's how the consent decrees were done. Difference in that case, though, is that as Assistant Attorney General, I was overseeing civil and criminal on those cases. So we had a criminal plea, which we did in conjunction with the criminal division and the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Michigan, but the environmental crime section there. So when we announced the third in the series, which we did right almost at the change of administration, this is like the third week in January, just before the Trump administration, where we did the plea agreement, We did the final civil consent decree, and then we indicted six different Volkswagen officials. That was done under the auspices of the Environment and Natural Resource Division with, again, the bulk of the work, particularly on the civil side, being done by the Environmental Enforcement Section, just like in Deepwater, that was done by, again, Environmental Enforcement Section, just two different teams. There was a different team that did Volkswagen and Deepwater. But Volkswagen, that was intentional conduct, which is why the criminal activity was clearer there. And then since that time, there has been successful prosecutions the lead person that we thought was most responsible received 40 months in jail for his time in the conduct that led to the defeat device issue that we now know undergirded what we now refer to as Dieselgate. John, I cannot quantify how many minutes of, or hours I've spent studying those three consent decrees closely. So I'm very familiar with those three consent decrees. So I wanted to close by thanking both of you for your time. This has been a really enjoyable discussion, and I appreciate the wealth of knowledge on DOJ as an institution and your experiences there. I have one last question before both of you leave today. What advice do you have for environmental lawyers who aspire to have careers as successful and storied as yours have been? And David, I'll go to you first on this last question. Well, I don't know if my career has been storied. I think I was very fortunate to be at the Justice Department, not literally at the beginning of environmental law. That had been 10 years before when NEPA started. But I was very fortunate in getting to do a lot of different things very early in my career. I mean, I had already tried about 50 cases when I came to Justice 79, mostly with the state attorney general's office in Pennsylvania, but I was able to do district court trial, civil and criminal work, a lot of defensive motions work, and then I was able to do court of appeals cases and help write Supreme Court briefs. I was also then became a manager when a lot of things were being developed 
and the sort of legal precedents were being set. So I feel looking back, that was all very educational and I got to learn a lot of different things. And it'd be pretty hard to replicate that today because now, frankly, the division is much more segmented out and you can't do all those kinds of things very easily. You certainly can't do them in three or four or five years working in one place. But I think the most important thing is to recognize that your job is working for the people of this country. It's not working for one agency. It's not working for one assistant attorney general or the other, but you represent all of the people of the United States. And that's a great and solemn responsibility, but it's also a wonderful opportunity. David, that is awesome advice. Thank you so much. And John, how about you? No, I think I was blessed. I inherited a good section from David, and I was surrounded by extraordinary individuals. These are people, lifelong friends now of mine, people dedicated to environmental progress, but also people with a high sense of ethical values, which I think is important. So now that I'm also teaching now, as well as practicing, I constantly say that having as diverse a possible experience is important. I was fortunate having a lot of trial experience. I was a military lawyer before I became at Justice. And so it gave me a lot of trial experience, which gave me a degree of confidence in court I would not have otherwise have. So I think diverse is important. But I also remind people that our environment as a profession is not so big that we don't know a lot of the players. And so your reputation, your commitment to integrity, not being a jerk is actually still quite important and something that everybody should still adhere to. And I think working hard and seeking responsibility are still a, a great pathway to success. I just want to say again, thank you both for your time. I remember when I was a law clerk at ELI in 2013, and John, you were president at the time. And unfortunately, I did not have the chance then to speak with you about your career and your experiences. So I'm grateful that today I've had that opportunity. And with COVID in the remote world, I really miss David Harris Sidley. When we were in person, he would rally the associates, take us to lunch from time to time and just talk about his experiences in private practice and with DOJ, and we always enjoyed hearing about his experiences. So I'm really happy that we're able to share both of your experience and your, your knowledge with the broader environmental law community. Thank you both so much for your service and for all you've added to the environmental legal field. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.